in thoughts that we opened up with last week. And the, the heading over this, I think it will, it will be the title that sticks for the whole series. The Church, Cruise Ship or Battleship. And last week, I, I tried to just begin to share some things that the Lord has been placing in my heart that I think they go together, and I think the more I chew on them, the more I see how intricately related they are. And we said last week they were the issues of understanding prayer and faith, of understanding our personal existence, and when it comes to our life and drawing breath and what we're about, our personal existence, and then restoration in the church. And, and those aren't three separate titles. I think they're all interrelated. And we, when we look today... And some of the thoughts, I think you'll see some of the connection that's here. When, when, when we talk about prayer and faith, for instance, and that's something God's been doing in our midst, stirring up a greater attitude of prayer. We had a wonderful corporate prayer time today, uh, whatever time we start, 9.45 or 10 o'clock until the next service. And, you know, prayer needs some context and some definition for it. And I've said that before. Faith needs that as well. Faith is that thing that just kind of launches prayer into being what it is. But faith needs to have some kind of proportionality to it. What, what, do, we, what do we need in faith for anyway? What's faith all about? Now, today, in the, in the land in which you and I live, in the type of information that we're around, I think a lot of folks come to church because they need faith to just kind of make it through the week. It's kind of, you know, I just... I hope something that's just uplifting is going to be said today. I just, I've had a hard week, and I've got another hard week facing me. I just need faith to make it through this week. Well, that, I guess, is, is an application for faith. I mean, there's no question. We face challenging issues, uh, difficult times in our, our walk and our life that we need faith for that. But if that's what our idea of faith is, I've got to tell us, that's a, that's a real small portion of what faith is about. There's a much bigger agenda that faith needs to be a part of. And we need faith for that. And if I'm going to get faith for something really big, then maybe I need to go after it in a different way, then I just need faith this morning for this week. If all you're really into right now is faith for this week in your life, maybe it's a really severe, unusual season, and that's going to be a big thing for you. But how many of y'all know that sometimes we make mountains out of molehills? You know, everything becomes a big thing to us. And we need faith. You know, Jesus said, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be removed. Well, you know, we've taken these little molehills and blown them up in the mountains. And, oh, Lord, you just made your move of your spirit. Just because, you know, I've I got, I got people at work who don't like me. And... I mean, I'm sorry about that, but, you know, you live in a fallen world. That, that shouldn't blow any of us away. You know, that's not, I don't think, God, that's not mountain moving faith. You know, that's, that's not even, you're not even in the legal mustard seed yet. And I think at that point, you're still staring through the microscope, looking at the electrons traveling around the atom. That's about how much faith it takes just to deal with the people at my office who don't like me. But we've turned that into a major thing. And it just advertises the fact that, I don't know if we get the bigger picture of our lives. My individual life, what's it about? What's it for? Why is it on earth right now? What's it supposed to be accomplishing? And, and yes, there is a place where God wants to, to work in my life, move in my life, heal my life, deal with those things that have occurred in my life and then still occur. But that's for releasing me into something much bigger. And so... Faith kind of is attached to, to who I am, and who I am is attached to something much bigger than just what's going on in me, personally, this week. And that's why I think all three of these items are related together. The church and its restoration, the reason for my personal existence, and prayer and faith are all tied together and need to be understood together. When I said last week, cruise ship or battleship. You know, those are the inferences of, of how we can live out this church life uh, existence, being a Christian. But I, I do want to say this, and I'm going to highlight this through a couple of prophetic passages today. If you're on board a cruise ship, you can at least get the sense and feeling that I'm on a boat. 
moving through water. So I am on board. But the inference is, in that comparison, you can be on board and be missing the point the whole time you're there. And in the church world today, I think there's a possibility of that that exists. People who are on board missing the point of why they're there. And, and in our country, we live in a country that is overdosing on emphasizing the individual. Uh, life has become a place where we're to understand life through the lens of me and who am I. I mean, you, you see this all over the news today. There are issues that are, that are in the news today that shouldn't even be in the news today. Uh, you know, we just had an election here where the state voted on an amendment to ban same-sex marriages. And 78% of the state said, we're for that amendment, we don't want same-sex marriages. Now, I'm wondering, why does it even need to be voted on then? If 78% of the people don't want it, don't want same-sex marriages, well, isn't this a democracy? Aren't we here serving what the public wants? But see, you and I, something's happened here in this country over time, and particularly in the last 40 years or so, where there's an overemphasis on the individual. Now, today, you could go to a school, sit in a public school setting, where 30 kids in that classroom would be wanting to pray, but one of them says, it offends me if you do. And guess what? You won't be praying that day. Because the rights of that individual have eclipsed the rights of everybody else. You know, and... Now, this would not be a nice bumper sticker for, for America, but, I mean, it's supposed to be how the thing was formed. It's like, this is what everybody wants. The rest of y'all sit in the back. That's what this country was about when it started. It's a democracy. If, everybody, if the majority of people want this, that is what happens. But something's happened. I'm not arguing for what a democratic government's are right. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to convince us that in our mindset, we live in a country where the individual's rights are being exploded to where our country is now being shaped by what a few people want. Well, that gets in us. Whether we like that idea or not, that is in us. It's the way things sound. So we come into the church. And we come in thinking that, okay, uh, this is about me. This is, this is for me. I've got a need. I'm so glad that there's a church there that can serve me in that. And the, and the emphasis becomes the individual rather than what's the big picture here? What's being accomplished? How do I look at this thing? Now, I put a little line in your outline opening up some thought here. Are you trying to understand the purpose of the church in light of your personal existence? Or... Are you trying to understand the purpose of your life in light of the existence of the church? Two very different ways of looking at how these two things operate together. Let me say it another way. Is the church a part of your life? Or is your life a part of the church? It's a very different way of looking at life. Many people come into Christianity today. This is why I believe the series of messages we're about to do on the restoration of the church is needed. Many people come into the church today and then they try and figure out what part the church is going to play in their life. Well, you know, I'm kind of into that Sunday morning part. You know, and, and not all the time because I've got other stuff going on and I, I need to be saving room for those things. So, you know, a lot of times I'm there on Sunday. That's the part it plays. And then maybe some folks say, well, you know, I'm the covenant group thing, I'm, I'm game for that, sure. I don't know if I really want relationships with the people there, but I'm, I'm into going. I'll attend the meetings. But many folks say, look, I'm here on Sunday morning, but my week's busy. I don't have time for a lot of those things. In that arena, you and I are saying, what part is the church going to play in my life? And we are assigning it a part. But what that screams out about us is that we lack an understanding of how God does what he does in the earth today. What God does, he does in the church, through the church. It is the means of God accomplishing what he's about. Are we about what he's about? Are we praying about what he's about? Are we having faith about what he's about? Am I seeing my part in what he is about? Or am I seeing me and what he's about somehow just needs to serve me and I need faith this big and I appreciate the teaching on faith but I only need it for this week. I just need to get through this week. You know what? God's not just trying to get through this week. This week. God's trying to take 
His kingdom, which, which from the beginning of time, He's been moving from here to there. And you know how He moves it? He blows upon the church and the church moves it. That's how the kingdom of God moves. So this week, God wants the kingdom to go from right here to right here. And how's it going to get there? It, it doesn't get there because you and I are going to read about it. Okay, well, great, we'll come back next week and you can tell us how it went from there to there. No, no, no. Every one of us is going to move it from there to there. That's how the kingdom operates. And so, in the scheme of our lives, we exist within the kingdom of God. That's the bigger picture. I'm part of that. It's not part of me. I'm part of it. And when it moves this week, it's going to be because we have moved the kingdom of God. And the emphasis needs to be on something besides the individual. Listen to this thought from a man named Udo Middleman, who wrote a book called The Market-Driven Church. He, this is an interesting book, because it's, this is a European who studied history of Christianity in Europe and then studied it in America and has made several really eye-opening observations about the flavor of the church in America, its strengths and its weaknesses. So the book is kind of a critique on that. But he cites this individualism that's forming a little bit about how we think. He says, we alone are important to ourselves. Personal happiness, immediate fulfillment, personal concerns can and do trouble us. In adolescence, we require everything to revolve around our needs. But church is not only composed of adolescence. Yet we hardly admit anyone to show us from a wider angle that our expectations about church and faith, life and love, may be very unrealistic, idealistic, and selfish. Exposure to the larger picture of life in a fallen world is avoided. From a narrower base of concerns and questions, the wider, glorious answers of God's answers and work in history remain undiscovered and unappreciated. Now, now that is a huge concern. When you step back from God's vantage point, you see... How does God do what He does? He does it through the church. He does it through this larger element. And we have made it all an individual thing. And so Christianity becomes, how does that touch me? How does that make me feel? How can I get encouraged? How can I be strengthened? And there's nothing wrong with me being encouraged, strengthened. And it's particularly helpful in light of the fact that I'm part of something bigger and I play an individual part. But the significance of its effect upon me really is only significant in the larger framework, and not just in a personal element. The result is that we end up trying to understand the purpose of the body in light of the finger. Remember last week I used the illustration that in the Bible, there's a description of the body of Christ as being made up of individual members. So some are eyeballs, some are ears, some are fingers. You know, the, the way to discover the purpose for the finger is not to start with the finger. It's to start with the body. It's to start with the larger context. This is why many people, I met a, met a man this week uh, at Playground who just, we talked about the purpose of life. And, and, you know, I shared a few of these thoughts with him. It, it's like light bulbs going off. It's like, oh, you know, that makes sense. This mystery of trying to figure out your life as a finger when you don't understand the body, you, you can't make it make sense. It just will not. You can't take the finger, remove it from the body, stare at it and say, what is this about? What would be really meaningful for the finger? What would I really enjoy doing? See, it's not until it gets joined to the hand and then the whole body's concept comes into play that you realize, wow, grasping things. That's what the finger is all about. Well, that's where you and I need to start. What's the big picture? What is God doing in a bigger scale? That's going to drive my prayer life, my faith, and who I am. So these things are all interconnected, and it's important that we address them. Now, we're going to get into a series here that's going to address the restoration in the church, because when the church begins to do what it's called to do, that bigger picture will drive the individuals to begin to do what they're called to do. Does that make sense? Let me give you a for instance, which we're going to address. If the church is supposed to reach out and affect the poor, if that's what the church is supposed to do, well, we can stand up here and say, okay, isn't it great? The Bible talks about reaching out and affecting the poor. 
But if none of us step up and say, I'll do that, I'll go to the poor, I'll care for people that way, then that will never get done. And therefore, our lives will now be available to do something else with them. Well, what is that something else? Are those things really significant out there that we're busy doing? See, if I'm a finger pulled off from the body and set over here, I'm trying to find finger activity, whatever that is. But when I realize the function of the body, it's going to occupy me now. And so when the, when the body gets correctly understood, when the church gets restored and correctly defined, it will define our lives in many ways. And it will define how we pray and what we pray for. But here's where this need comes in. God has always declared, here's, here's his purpose statement. People have always drifted from that purpose statement. If this is the heading that we're supposed to be on, people begin to move. Through time, human experience, people end up shooting at that over there. Or some are shooting way back there, going the opposite direction of God. But there is this tendency to drift in our lives, in human experience. And this is as old as man is. You know, it didn't take Adam and Eve very long to drift from where God had established them in the garden, did it? And it wasn't long before there were other issues in their life besides God's. And they were going after that. And, you know, if they lose track of what God's about, next thing you know, uh, faith, faith is about Eve and I aren't getting along since one of our sons killed the other one. That's what faith's about now. It's about that little, it's like detached from everything, in this little microchasm of existence, there's a family that exists, and a husband and a wife are fighting because their children are killing each other, literally in this case. And prayer is about getting God to fix that. That's what prayer is about. So teach me some technique on prayer, right? Isn't that big and missing the bigger picture? How do these two get in this spot? Because a principality called the serpent entered into the garden of their lives in order to disrupt the purpose of God for having a people who would glorify him. That's how they got in that predicament. See, there's a much bigger issue going on here. The glory of God is at stake in this little household. So it's not just, let me have a technique, let me learn how to pray because me and my wife are having problems. That's a much bigger thing here. But since Adam and Eve, there's been a need for restoration. When God calls out of all the earth, he calls the people to himself. And he forms a covenant with them. And he makes a covenant at Sinai with the nation of Israel. You're going to be my people. Of all the people in the world, I've chosen you to be my people. Here's what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to live. Here's what worship's going to look like. Here's what it's going to be like for you to live on the earth with your heart to be mine. How long did it take for them to change course? Actually, you know, their heading is over here. They're, they're pursuing something else. Now, into this arena of, of God's people off course comes what I call the, the covenant police. That's what the prophets were. When you see the prophets coming in in the scriptures, the prophets are those coming in saying, you're off course. You guys have drifted off course. And so whether you believe the prophets begin before Samuel, who really gets identified as the real first defining prophet, uh, about 1100 B.C., all the way through Malachi at the end of the uh, uh, Old Testament, these prophets are all coming, and they're all trying to get the course heading back to where it was supposed to be. So we're always in need of restoration. But, but listen, let's, let's visit Isaiah for a moment, because Isaiah, chapter 1. Isaiah is one of the covenant police. He's coming back to say, you know, you hear the siren behind you. You've been weaving outside the lines. You're going too fast. Here, God spelled it out. Here's how you drive. Don't drive like you're driving, okay? I'm going to have to pull you over. to give you a warning this time. Next time there'll be a ticket. After that, you're going to jail. I mean, really, when you look at the prophets, that's kind of, that's what they did, right? They came and said, here's the warning. You need to repent. You know, they didn't repent. If you don't repent, God's going to begin to bring judgment on the nation. If you don't do that, the Babylonians are coming to take you to jail. Isn't that what they were? So if you just can see Isaiah, you know, here comes Isaiah, okay? Here comes Isaiah chapter 1, covenant police. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. 
But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now look at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Now notice what it says here. When you come, not if you ever come again, when you come, and this is a picture that's very revealing and very helpful for us in a modern time frame where we're needing restoration. In this time frame, these people, they didn't stop going to church. They stopped bringing their offerings. In the day in which Isaiah came and said, you know what, you guys are over here and this is what God wants from you. He wants you restored over here. It wasn't as though they had completely blown God off. Isaiah doesn't show up and say, listen, I need to reintroduce you. My name's Isaiah, and there is someone called God. His name would be Yahweh. Maybe some of your old grandparent types might remember a little bit about him, but the rest of y'all have completely forgotten. That's not the case here. They remember plenty. There's a lot that looks like what God told them to do, but here you have God saying, just, just stop doing it. I, I, I hate it. This is God hating the very thing. It's like, like me as a pastor stand up saying, I hate you coming to church. I hate it. Now, if I was serious about that, that ought to get your attention in a big, huge way. Because that's what pastoral ministry is about. It's about God's people working and joining together to glorify God. For me to turn around and say, I hate it, would reveal something about what's missing, even though you're attending. So these guys are attending but there's something missing. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. It was the Lord who told them to burn incense, by the way. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, which the Lord had told them to do that too. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. This is the people who are offering sacrifices, who are attending feasts, who are honoring the calendar that they've been given, and they're even praying. And yet God says, you're way over here. And you're needing to be restored. And he sends a prophet to tell them that they need to be restored. Now, go all the way back to Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament, last book of the Old Testament. Hundreds of years later, Isaiah has come hundreds of years earlier and proclaimed, you're in need of restoration. Hundreds of years later, right? Now, exactly what I mentioned before, Isaiah mentions, here's the warning, you need to turn, if not, there'll be judgment, and if you don't turn after that, you're going to jail. Now, they've already been to jail. Now, they've been in Babylon. They've come out, gone back. They've begun to restore some things. Some time goes by. Malachi comes prophesying again. You're needing to be restored again. You have drifted again. Listen to what he says in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Now, now this is telling. Because here you're going to have another scenario, just like Isaiah, where it's not as though the people have stopped practicing their religion. They are practicing. And they're kind of shocked when Malachi comes. And he points out to them, you guys are missing it. You're missing that you are off the mark. You have drifted off the mark. 
So much so that what you're doing is a, is a, a proclamation that you despise the Lord. What? How have we despised the Lord? Now, now it's, it's revealing that that's their response. And it's revealing to us, and it's a little bit of a caution to us, that you and I could very easily have the Lord address us in a corrective way and us be clueless about what he's trying to get at. Have you ever had that happen to you? Ever have somebody come to you, bring an observation, bring some word of conviction, and you get sounding like these priests? How have we despised? What? Get your back all up, all defensive, because you don't even see the blind spot. You don't even know it's there. You know, sometimes, I believe one of the functions that God has assigned to preaching the Word, unlike reading the Word, which God can, can do this in reading the Word or reading a book. Preaching, I think, carries with it a dynamic that God sometimes wants to use almost in a prophetic sense where something's going to be said, not just something's going to be said, but the way it's going to be said and the way you're going to hear it sometimes carries that Malachi prophetic element to it. And, you know, and, and I'll be honest, I, I try to do this, I know Peter will do this, and Matt and Jeff, any of us who... who preach on a Sunday, we hold out the realities that we get in the mix of this thing. That, and here's the Word of God, but then Keith's going to say something, and sometimes there's a little bit more Keith than there was the Holy Spirit saying that. The way it was said sometimes. And so, you know, we try to be careful. We try to correct one another when we see that occurring. Um, but and, and we will receive this from you. If you were to come and say, you know, I get emails on this sometimes, or somebody will come and say something about how I said something. And I do try to apply that to me first. But let me just tell you, as those receiving the word, sometimes you're responding like these guys here. You know, I think that was a little bit, you know, I think it was a little over the top there, the way in which that was said. Well, so did these priests thought that too. Because they were busy in their practice, not knowing they needed to be corrected. And when the word of correction came, instead of realizing, you know what, I've been waiting for that word. I know I'm out of line. I know I haven't been walking this thing out right. I've been negligent. I, my heart's not in it. Uh, when the word came, I, was just, I just knew it was coming. You know, sometimes we're so steeped in our wrong practices. We're so askewed. We're walking things out full blast, full blown. But we're still participating over here that we don't even realize we're being corrected. And when it comes with a jabbing point on it, sometimes what you end up doing with that point is pulling it out and saying, how dare you poke me like that? And we take offense at the person saying it to us. Well, these guys were offended. They needed to be corrected. You say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. You say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And this is interesting. Do you think anybody used those words, by the way? This is the deceptiveness of, of drifted practice. Do you think anybody actually got together when they brought their offerings to the Lord and they came together for these holy meetings, that they actually got together and said, hey guys, you here for the despising meeting? All right, great. Let's go in and despise God together. Come on. But that's what Malachi said you were doing. By your practice, you are despising God. That was, a, that was an interesting word for people who were going, what? <laughs> how, how are we despising? I'm going to get this. Come on, Malachi. Did you had a bad night last night? When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Somebody, don't ever tell me. I know that I have a gift of sarcasm. Don't ever tell me that God's not sarcastic. Okay, I'm just trying to be like God when I'm sarcastic sometimes. <laughs> tell that to your governor. <laughs> and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would just shut the doors. You might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. 
Again, what's most intriguing is these are people who are not like, man, I, I haven't been to church and I know, I know Malachi. I haven't been there. I haven't, I haven't brought an offering to the Lord in months. They were bringing offerings. And see, that's the danger. You start thinking what I'm doing, you know, it's still in this, it's, it's still in that general direction. But what we, when we start offering God leftovers, spare time, spare parts, spare energy, offerings financially, and then we just hit on that issue of financial offerings. This is an issue of financial offering right here. This is a, a people whose, whose bankroll is not in their pocket, it's not in a checkbook, it's in their pigs, it's in their, their flocks. And so when they go to make an offering to God, they go and survey the flock, take from it and bring it and give it to God. So here's the mentality that's being confronted. Not so much that, you know, these are some ugly animals you're offering, but the heart that wants to give an ugly animal to God. It's a heart that looks out and says, you know, I can't part with that. I could get a lot for that one and that one. I could sell that one and that one. Too important to the flock. Can't get rid of that one. Where is, the, where is that maimed one? You know, the one that we almost had to shoot the other day. It's barely alive anyway. Where, where's that one? Let's bring that one. I mean, it requires a lamb to be brought. Let's bring a lamb. So we bring a lamb, and here it is. Now, that's then. What about now? You know, when I survey my month, and I make all my financial plans to pay that bill, do that thing, buy that thing, overstretch in that direction, have this, have that, want that, save for that. Oh, let's see. What do I got left around here? Uh, here, God, here's a buck. Now, you tell me the difference between those two. Back then, you had a prophet standing saying, you know when you do that? You're despising God. Now, somebody help me. What is the difference between them doing that then and us doing that now? The church becomes in need of restoration. The church has drifted, and, and the prophets come, and prophetic word and preaching comes and tells us we're supposed to be here, and we're over here. And we've accepted these things as normal. Why? Because there's others doing it too. We know other people who aren't giving the best to God in their life, not doing it. God doesn't enter, He doesn't have that place. But we're in church, or even in a covenant group. I mean, what, what more do you want from us? to be restored to what God had in mind, his church to be. An awesome, incredible, dynamic place that was first for him and for his glory and for the furtherance of his kingdom. From the day that Jesus walked into the temple, remember, he walks in and makes a big, noisy uprising one day in the temple. And if you had been his disciples, this is the interesting thing, his disciples walk with him they had been in and out of that temple over and over and over again in their lives. When Jesus walks in, he walks in and sees what was supposed to be a house of prayer that has become something else. It slowly has drifted from this to something else. And when he looks what was supposed to be a place where people would worship God, honor Him, place Him upon the pedestal, the highest place in their hearts and lives, and then begin to present the earth to God to reign over it, to pour out His blessing. This, this place where there was a, a radio transmitter to heaven, if you will, that would call down the blessings of God to save the nations. Jesus walks into that place and He finds it's become a marketplace to sell things and make a profit. Now, remember what He doesn't walk into. He doesn't walk into a place overgrown by vines. No one's there. It's desolate. And He's oh, taken aback. There's no one here. There's people there. There's lots of people there. And I can only imagine what his disciples thought when they walk with Jesus and he walks in and probably doesn't say a word and looks around. And the expression on his face changes and the blood drains from his head. And he gets this look of disappointment that turns to intensity and zeal for thine house consumes him. And he walks past the other guys, pushes them out of the way, picks up a cord, and begins to make a whip out of it, tying things together, fastening it. And they're watching this, and they're, what is, 
What's going on? And when he finally puts it together, throws back his robe and he begins to walk through in a loud voice and dumps over tables and runs people out and zeal in his heart. For what? For his temple to be restored to what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. Because God knew, that's how I move my kingdom. I move it from here to here when my people pray. And when you don't pray, it doesn't move. And so you've got a God who was very intense in that moment, seeking to restore the purpose that he had placed the temple upon the earth. Now, now, what would the Lord be like walking into a church today where prayer is top of the list of that which is neglected? And we're going we're to study this one for a week by itself in this series. What would his attitude be like as he walks into a church full of people but not full of prayer. So he confronts our lives and he says, you, you have despised me. You have made my church about something else than what I called it to be about. See, that's a church in need of restoration. Guys, we never get away from this. We never get away. We live in a world where there is sin, there's weakness in our flesh, there's, there's ungodly appetites that reside in us, and there's a spiritual crosswind that's blown at 100 miles an hour. And when you step out into that with your life, you are going to experience getting blown off course. That's not any of us have this resistant attitude that we don't want to be corrected. I don't like the tone of what you're saying today. Well, maybe you don't. And I make no apology for it at all. I would rather stand alongside Malachi by myself and know I told your people what they needed to hear. We live in a time where the church has become something else besides what the church is supposed to be. We're not standing in line with those folks. This is not going to be a church that's going to miss it and miss it and miss it and miss it. If God needs to kick us in the behind, then he's going to kick us in the behind. And I'll stand right in front and get kicked first because I know I need it. I'm concerned. You want to talk about restoration, revival? I'm concerned. I don't even know what restoration means. I'm concerned. I've lived in a culture. I've lived in a church world long enough to where I think if you're just a little bit ahead of the curve, wow, that's revival. Woo, God's breaking out here. We have people who attend covenant groups in our church. You know, a lot of churches can't pull that off. They can't get people to come back to anything besides Sunday morning. I'm not sure revival is what you'd call people who attend another meeting. You know, what we're going to do in this series is we're going to, we're going to look at some snapshots from the book of Acts. Because we need to find out what did God have in mind? What do we need to be restored to as a church? Now, the great news in this, and I know there's a little bit of, an, of a jab this morning, the great news is this. You and I will never no full joy until we take up our place within what God is doing. So if I've somehow detached my life from what God's doing, His glory filling the earth, His kingdom going from here this week to here, and I had a part of that, what am I supposed to be like this week? What's my prayer life supposed to be like when the kingdom goes from here to here? What's faith supposed to be like in my life? What's the activity of my life supposed to look like when the kingdom advances? If I'm not doing that, I'm doing something else. No matter how great it feels, it will not satisfy me like the kingdom of God will. So the great news here is let's get corrected so that we can get God in such a way that, man, what a delight to be laid hold of by God for glorious purposes and for our life to take on incredible meaning and significance as to why do you and I draw our next breath upon this earth If we're going to make some changes, and we need to, it's going to require faith for us to make changes. When I say faith, I'm going to grow with that Hebrews 11 definition. Faith is this, it's this conviction of things not seen. It's a, I'm going to use the word compelling conviction. Faith is a compelling conviction. It's when, when something is inside of us in such a way that it produces movement. It produces activity. It produces an attitude. It's not just us collecting information and gathering thought and saying, well, that's faith. 
Now, now faith is something that sets things in motion. It's, it's movement in us. First starting with our heart, our, our motivation, but moving out into our activities as well. Restoration is simply recognizing where you are and where God wants us to be and walking in faith to get there. It is taking up God's agenda and making whatever change is necessary to see it get accomplished. See, God has an agenda. Every person plays a part in that. I want to I learn from a couple of guys here. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 with me. Clarify faith for a moment. I want to take some lessons from these guys who live their lives, but I, I want to put them in the context of ever since God created man, he's always had an agenda. And then God has always pulled man into that agenda. Okay? So when we're going to study some of these guys here, that's what defines who they are. God pulling them into His agenda and then them living their lives with faith to see that agenda get accomplished. That's what makes them famous. That's why they're in this chapter. Hebrews 11. They're living in the faith chapter because they live by faith. But that's how they did it. Verse 7. Let's look at Noah for a moment. By faith, or by compelling conviction, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world, became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Noah heard something from God and acted on it. That's a simple breakdown of that passage. By faith... What God revealed to Noah became the the steering mechanism for his life. And then he did something with it. And ponder for a moment what this guy did. This guy is, is he's going to accept an assignment from God. He's living his life. He's been a godly man. How many of y'all think that Noah had a dream as a child? He wanted to be a a boat builder. This grew up, oh God, I've always wanted to build boats. I've never seen water but I've always wanted to build boats. (laughs) He's minding his business. He's he's loving God. And God's about to come along and reveal his big picture. And when he reveals his big picture to Noah, Noah's life is going to take on significance. Why do you and I know who Noah is? Noah had a neighbor. Y'all know Noah had a neighbor? You know his name? No, he drowned. You don't know his name. (laughs) It's a terrible story. You know the story, you just don't know his name. You know Noah, though, don't you? Because his life took on significance because God came one day and gave this man an assignment. Noah, I want you to build an ark. That's who you now are, Noah. You're my ark builder. And not just because i got nothing to do, but because I have an agenda. Through that ark, I'm going to save my purposes. I'm going to destroy the rest of the earth and demonstrate my righteousness. But through your actions, I'm going to save my purpose, Noah. Noah heard that. It affected him. And he had faith, compelling conviction in such a way that he was going to spend the next, ready, 120 years in obedience to God. Now, you need to appreciate something about Noah and his obedience for 120 years. I was walking in a, a, a bookstore once, and I came across this, this painting. It's called The Commission. And I looked at this painting, and it's a, it's a, a little valley scene. Noah, a couple of his family members, several of the animals, and up through this valley, a little valley, it's like a little trickling brook here, about that wide. Up through this valley, up on a hill, there is this enormous boat being built. Right, I mean, you guys know the size of the ark, right? Football field and a half long. So you have the skeleton of it. It doesn't have a rim on it yet. It's just the skeleton. You can just see the structure in place. And when you see this man kind of, I don't know what he's doing. He's just sitting on the stump in the picture there. He's, he's whittling or something. I don't know whether he's pondering, taking a break. I'm sure he probably needed to do that. But when you look at the scale of what this man had taken on with his life, when I saw that painting, you know, it says the commission. Uh, I want, I've always wanted, matter of fact, somebody knew I wanted that painting and got it for me. So I have it hanging in my office. And it frequently reminds me of what I wanted to put across the bottom. Attempt big things for God. 
Because I looked at this one man's life and thought, wow. What a vision this guy had. I mean, become Noah just for the first few days of this adventure. He hears this word from God, he sets out. And he takes a saw, and he goes and cuts down a tree. Aha, uh-huh, you know. Again, this, this, is, this is before DeWalt and, you know, all those power equipment things. This is a guy with a saw. You know those kind? I know most of us don't know. You can see those in the Smithsonian. Um, he goes and cuts down a tree, the first of many. Look, I, I had, I used power tool saw to cut put boards in my windows. Um, my brother went home and took it with him, and I had to cut another board with one of his saws. You know, I decided, that's it. After this, the storm can blow my house down. I'm not cutting any more of these things. <laughs> so, you know, if this is one tree that he had to take the tree and cut it into more wood and put this thing in place for 120 years, that's the kind of faith a compelling conviction is. With all the opposition, all the delay, all the problems, this man has faith to persevere and to do something enormous. That, that's what faith is. I want to play in that league. I want to be in that league of faith. I don't just want to be, well, you know, I'm a part of the church, and, you know, I just, I just need to hear something this week to get me by. I just need faith for this week. Well, how about something bigger than that? How about something bigger than just faith for this week? Now, listen, I, I, know, I know life can be hard. I know it can be challenging. Uh, I know there's some difficult moments in it. Um, but see, we've downgraded this stuff so much that Christianity is about, I just, I just need a major move of God this morning because, you know, I've got people at work who don't like me. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm sympathetic about that much. You're in a fallen world. Of course people don't like you. They probably stab you in the back, say horrible things. I mean, this is part of living in a fallen world. But what's a bigger deal is we live in a world God is redeeming. That's a bigger deal. It's one thing to say, I just need to learn to put up with life. I need faith to put up with life. That's a different faith than I need faith for the next 120 years to build something much bigger than me and to persevere in it when people ridicule me, say I'm an idiot. And I start wondering, God, did I really hear from you? It's really what you told me to do with my life. You see, you understand, I was just a finger, so you put me on the body. Now I'm, now I'm, a, I'm an ark builder. Did I miss you on this, God? Is there any such thing as a need for an ark? I mean, this is where the challenge of faith comes in. When you're walking out the purpose of God, that's about advancing his kingdom. Yes, I called you to do that. Because I need what you're about to do in order to move my kingdom from here to there. That's what I need. See, in us... Look, 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 move here to Abraham for a moment. You pass Noah, Abraham, Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city who has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now here's a man with a compelling conviction in his heart that when God speaks to him, he takes his life, he picks it up from what is familiar to him. His whole life has been in this setting. He knows what happens. He knows the seasons. He knows how to do business in this setting. He knows who the good guys and the bad guys are, right? He's familiar with life right now. God says, leave there and go over here. So now, in this moment, he's about to encounter what it is to really walk by faith. You know, a lot of times, familiar things don't take faith from us. They did at one point until they became familiar. And then it becomes a matter of sight. And I know it's going to happen here. I don't have to walk in faith. But if I've got to go over there, and you haven't even told me exactly where I'm going, I'm going to have to walk in faith in a whole new way. And faith is going to take on a whole new proportion in this man's life. But here's a critical element. We learn this from from Abraham's life as well. Look down, verse 17. This is what's critical for us, I believe, in the whole realm of, of faith growing and increasing. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, 
Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He was in the act of offering up his son. You remember, God required of him his own son. The child of promise. The one for whom it would have been very easy for Abraham to start putting his faith in Isaac. And God comes and says, Okay, Abraham, father of faith, offer your son to me. How many of y'all know it's, it's one thing to say, God, you have my whole life. It's not a bit of it, it's mine, it's all yours. Lord, I just surrender it all to you. I mean, you know, it's different to say that than it is to take a knife, hold it over your head, and, and be on the way down of jamming it into your own son. Which one of those is a greater faith moment? The activity requires greater faith than the statement or the idea. You and I live in an age where we love information. We love ideas. We love just to read about faith. Right? Abraham, you're going to be the father of faith. That's what you're going to be famous for, Abraham. Oh, Lord, thank you for telling me that. Then I probably need to really study up real hard on faith then. Abraham, leave Ur of the Chaldees. Well, no, Lord, that really won't be necessary. If you just bring those books to me here, I'll study and I'll be this incredible father of faith. Well, no, Abraham, leave and, and follow me. Well, where are we going? Well, I'll show you. Well, Lord, you know, I don't know that that's necessary. Why, why don't you just send me a book written by a guy who did that once? He followed you. I'll learn all about that and my faith will grow. Right? Wrong. When does faith grow? When you leave Earth the Chaldees. When you go into a land that you don't know anything about. When you lift your knife up into an impossible situation saying, this is about to become impossible. God honoring his promises to me that hey, I'm going to be a father of great nations. I'm about to kill my son. This is impossible. See, in that moment, now you're learning about faith. See, now faith is growing. And listen, I'm right in line with everybody on this one. I love to read, so I'd much rather read a book about faith than actually step out and do any of that stuff. Take a chance. Venture out in ministry. Live life differently. Ooh, I don't want to do that. Why don't we just have some good messages on faith? That's what we need around here. Let's have some good preaching on faith, brother. Come on. Bring it. Amen. That's right. That's what faith is. You know, We don't have a clue as to what faith is until you leave Earth of Chaldees. Until you cut down your first tree. And then you might not really know too much about faith until you cut down your thousand and first tree. Whole new realm of faith then, isn't it? And all these guys stand in line and give us this rich legacy. I'm going to leave you this last one. Look at Moses for a second. By faith, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. They saw that he was a child, was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to the reward. See, now, a little different issue here. For Abraham, it was Abraham... Leave where you are and go to where I'm going to show you. For Moses, Moses received the revelation that he felt the only way to answer that is to refuse to stay where I am. I refuse to stay here. And you know, sometimes that's where faith needs to get us. I refuse to stay here any longer. By faith, I refuse to do this any longer because I believe the riches of God are over there for me. So by faith, I'm going to set out and I'm going to pursue those things. Now the criticalness, and, and you can go back and really look at Abraham on this in James chapter 2. I may have put this verse in your outline. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, it's almost like this, this compound element that needs two things to make it what it is. You know how you kind of add those two things together, like they keep them separate, but when you bring them together, they become something else. It's like this chemical reaction that takes place. Well, faith needs works to be added to it. 
so that faith can actually move to the next place. That's what that verse kind of basically teaches. The working with means to become a partner in labor with, in the Greek. And the word bring to perfection or faith was perfected means to add what is yet lacking in order to render a thing full. So it's almost that you can have faith, but that faith can't become full. It can't go on until you add works to it. It's like it's another little element. You've got to add that together. And for Abraham, his faith went to the next level when he said, okay, we're out of here. We're leaving early Chaldees. We're going where I don't know. When he put faith and steps to that, then his faith became something that it wasn't up to that moment. And he could have agreed in theory, Lord, you know, if I did leave her, you know I would trust you, God. That was not the same. When he actually added works to it, it changed his faith into something more full. To the point where one day he'd be able to lift a knife over, his, over the promise that was set before him, even trusting God in that moment as well. Where did he get that from? First day faith? No. A life of activity based on faith. Same for Moses as well. Steps of faith. So, guys, what I want to leave us with today, and Matt, you can go ahead and start coming up here, is for faith to become... You know, we're talking about restoration. We're going to do a series on restoration. We're going to look at the church through the lens of what God said the church is supposed to be. And in looking at the church, we're going to look at ourselves as a result. So, how do we get from here to here? How do we change some of these things? How, when we learn and get convicted, here's what the, the Bible has for us to be as the people of God. How do I get from here to here? Well, I'm going to get there by faith. But I'm only going to get there if my faith is vital. If it has health to it. So, so part of restoration is the revitalization of faith. And my faith only becomes vital when I get out of the center of the protective cone that I've created and start living on the edge. See, teaching on faith doesn't do it. A life that's being lived on faith does it. Now, let me give you this picture here. Let's suppose faith is a living organism inside of you. God has given to each man a measure of faith. God's given you faith. It's this living organism in you. It wants to grow to completion. Right? We're to be a people going from faith to faith. And you see that in that passage. Faith going towards completion and maturity. So there's this organism in you. Let's give him a personality. Okay? So faith is this, this little person inside of you. And faith... Faith grows by eating certain things, right? You and I grow by certain nutrition. Faith grows by eating certain things. You know what faith loves to eat? Faith loves to eat unfamiliar things. New things that we've never done before. Faith loves that. You know, here comes an opportunity for us to step out in an area I've never done that before. I've I'm, I'm always been this. And here comes this opportunity. Faith smells it coming. I mean, it's like cookies baking in the oven. You smell that? You smell that? Of course, my response to smelling the cooking of unfamiliar things is, yeah, it smells like burned rubber. What? It stinks. Are you attracted to that? I'm repulsed by it. I like comfortable settings. I'd like to stay right where I am for the rest of my life. It smells great right here. Comfort smells good to me. Faith turns back and says, no, 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 you don't smell that. Oh, it's tremendous. Let's eat. Come on. It's done. Let's eat. Like, uh, we ain't eating that, man. You don't understand. That's unfamiliar. It's unpredictable. Uh, I could be embarrassed. I could step out, fail. You understand what I'm saying? That, that smells like failure to me. You know what failure smells like? It smells like a problem. Faith turns back and says, it smells great. Let's eat. It's done. And this is, this is where faith wants nutrients. Faith wants to take risk. We don't like to take risks, do we? We like to be safe. We're to be just, well, we've always done that. And so we'll just do what we've always done one more time. And that's faith. Oh, God, I got, I got faith. I got faith to do that one more time. You know the thing you've done a thousand times? When you did it the first two, four, eight times, it took faith. Now, it takes sight. It's not necessarily faith anymore to walk it out in a way that pushes you to the edge. Right? I mean, when your children are little, they're scared to brush their teeth. There's probably some faith involved in that. How many of y'all really are calling out to God when you go grab the toothbrush in the morning? It's like, oh, God, 
God be with me. Come on, Lord. Just need a move of your spirit. I'm hanging on to that word from Sunday. <laughs> you know, that's not that's not how you're living. There's no faith in that. But you know, when you step out into a new arena, when you step out into a new relationship, when you step out into a new ministry, when you when you step out into a new role at work, when, you know, whatever God's pushing you out into, faith loves that moment because in that moment it's got something to eat. And I'm concerned that we are a people who are starving faith to death in our lives. We're avoiding everything that it loves to eat. I want to step out. I want to minister that way. I want to take a chance. Faith starves in the corner. But we want to hear messages on faith. It just doesn't work that way. Faith needs to eat something. Not hear something. Eat something. So it needs, it needs new settings. It needs furtherance. It needs the walls of our lives to get pushed out a bit so faith can come and fill it more with something that's new. Let's stand up together. Father, we, we stand before you, you who dwell in unapproachable light. Lord, I stand aware of my tendency to downgrade who you are. To take your lofty plans and intentions and downgrade them, make them too small, make them something I can manage. Lord, when your purpose loses its grandeur and its greatness, Lord, in that moment, we are, we are probably most likely to greet the voice of Malachi like, what are you talking about? I pray. Off the things. I'm involved. Yet, Lord, we are needing grace from you to hear do I need to be restored, Lord? Are my definitions weak in comparison to what you're up to? Lord, I don't want to be building a personal sailboat when you call me to build an ark. I want to know what it is to have a conviction that compels me in my heart to leave my Ur of the Chaldees and go somewhere else, knowing that you will go with me. You will be faithful. You're going to bring about and accomplish through my life exactly what you said, even if I can't figure out how you do it. Even if it looks like I'm going to blow this whole thing by picking this knife up. God, would you give to us a faith that trusts you in those ways. Because, Lord, you're not just calling us to have faith for personal issues. You are calling us to have faith to advance your kingdom. And that kingdom, as we push it forward in the Spirit, is facing obstacles in a war, Lord. Lord, there are powers and principalities in heavenly places, wickedness that stands against what you want to accomplish in our lives, in this church, in this hour. Lord, give us a sense of what it is to have a faith that is sufficient to move those obstacles out of the way. To have lived in a generation and proclaimed your grace in our generation so that your kingdom was advanced. Well, which has not always been the case for many generations. Lord, we want to be a generation that was faithful to the commission You gave to us. Lord, we want to be a church who was faithful to the commission You gave to us. When You came and made us a battleship with a mission and You said You'd go with us to accomplish great things. Lord, we want to be about doing those great things. We want to be restored to Your intention. Well, we want to know what each one of us are called to do in this setting. 
And we want to step out in faith and see it get done. Lord, we want to be a people who walk in faith and not just talk about faith. So, Father, would you do what only your Holy Spirit can do? Only you this morning can disturb us in a holy way. Lord, I know that I can irritate people right now, but only you can disturb us in a holy way to where we want to go deeper. We want to be unentangled with the things around us. We want to go after your purpose. We want to be restored, Lord. God, make us that kind of people who in the days ahead when we hear messages from what you had in mind about our lives, about the church, Lord, we are postured in faith to walk in them. We're not just going to hear something that we might wish one day could occur, but you're going to give us a faith that right away we begin to make movement toward that thing. We begin to shape our lives, change our patterns, walk in a manner that actually puts reality to our faith. So that faith becomes enormous in our midst. And prayer, whoo! What would prayer become, Lord, when our hearts are full of faith because we've seen you over and over and over again. That next obstacle is no match for what we are ready to believe you to do in our lives. God, send us this week to encounter you this way. Show us your father.